Welcome to the Soccer Metrics Podcast, a discussion and interview series with leading names in the soccer analytics world. Here's your host, the founder of Soccer Metrics, Howard Hamilton. Welcome to episode number two of the Soccer Metrics Podcast, recorded on the 10th of October, 2013. Soccer Metrics Podcast is an interview and interview series with lean figures from the soccer analytics world with occasional forays into the broader worlds of football business and sports analytics. In this episode, I am pleased to have on the show Michael Calvin, a sports columnist for the Sunday Independent in London and the author of The Nowhere Men, a rather interesting book on the world of football scouts. Michael, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure. For the benefit of our listeners, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your previous works? Um, I've been around um, top-class sport for more years than I care to remember, probably about 30. Um, been very lucky in terms of having worked in around about 80-odd um, countries. Um, my role has always been as a columnist or chief sports writer, um, specializing in, in the major mainstream sports. Um, obviously, uh, here in the UK, uh, football, um, but um, across the board, really, um, I've done about six World Cup finals, uh, seven Olympic Games, um, bluffed my way to a couple of honours here and there, and um, I've loved sport um, since I was a kid, and what I um, find compelling about sport, um, both on a personal and professional level, is that one sees the best in human nature and the worst in human nature. So it's, it's essentially a human exercise. Um, the books that I've done, um, what I've tried to do is study individual cultures within, within football. Um, I did a book two or three years ago, uh, which was called Family, Life, Death and Football, which was I spent a year embedded in one of the most notorious football clubs over here, uh, Millwall. Um, but I had complete access uh, now. That is more, uh, if you look at, for instance, uh, North American journalism and sports writing, there is a greater degree of access. Uh, over here, um, the dressing room door is usually closed. However, in this case, I had carte blanche to study the football club and the people within it. Uh, at very, very close quarters, uh, very intimate, and actually you become assimilated into the group when you're with a sports group like that. So um, I've always been quite interested and influenced by some um, some American sports writing, uh, um, you know, the John Feinsteins. Um, I've always admired uh, David Halberstam and people like that um, for their, their insight and their perspective and their rigour. Um, so that was a very useful exercise. Um, I looked at the football, it's a lower league football club and a very, very powerful um, sort of group culture. Um, and there you had footballers who are not like the, the Premier League, English Premier League players in terms of having that financial stability. They are ordinary working men and they have mortgages and they have worries about the children if they need to be uprooted. Um, so it's a, it's a very, it was a, a very human study of a football club, um, which seemed to go down quite nicely. Did it change? The nowhere men. 
Did it change your perception of Millwall? Because it seems to me that they have a reputation that might have been earned from acts or misdeeds in the past, but they try really, really hard to move beyond it. They do. Um, and what I, uh, I find most gratifying from the feedback from that book, which has been you know, quite extraordinary in many ways, is that I have encouraged people to look beyond the stereotypes. You know, you, you're absolutely right, Howard, that the club has a poor reputation and in many ways is a, a prisoner of its past. Um, culturally, it was always seen as... Um, it was always stigmatised, um, as if uh, the club's name almost was synonymous with football hooliganism. Now, one cannot escape the fact that a minority of their supporters, um, you know, are notably antisocial at times. I, what I try to do is look at one the um, sense of belonging that a club like that generates, but secondly, what a club like that can do as a positive force for good within its own community. And uh, if you look very, very closely at what they do, they're aligned with some very important social issues. Um, they run um, anti-knife crime projects, uh, gun crime. They, they work in a very multicultural, economically depressed area. Um, the players, supporters, staff of the club contribute um, to a food bank locally where um, locally disadvantaged um, families can get can get uh, uh, basic necessities uh, for nothing. So there was a, there's a real sort of social uh, bond there. And you know, as I said earlier on, uh, one sees the best of human nature and the worst of human nature actually not just in sport itself, but, but actually Millwall is a microcosm of, of that sporting world. Right. So what motivated, what motivated you to write a book about football scouts? I'd always been uh, fascinated by, by the whole process of talent identification. Um, I mean, funnily enough, there was, a, there was an American book which stimulated my interest in it. Um, I've been over to the States quite a lot, um, done a couple of World Series and Super Bowls and things like that. But I... This was about maybe oof, 15 years ago, perhaps. I picked up a book um, because um, I was in Boston at the time, um, just going through all the, the bookshops, which I've, I've spent ages. And there was a, there was a, a book called Prophet of the Sandlot uh, by a guy named uh, Mark Weingardner. And this was a, a book uh, on a uh, Major League Baseball scout um, named uh, Tony Lucadello. And it followed him along the highways and byways of, of, of Middle America, really. I think he was a scout from memory for, I think it was the Orioles. I, I, I could stand, stand corrected on that. But it was, it was not just sort of Americana. It was a real insight into this one man's um, pursuit of, of the sort of unrealizable dream, that perfect player. Um, and he, he was, he, the, what he went through in terms of the, uh, almost the, you know, the monastic rigour of his life. He was on the road all the time, ate badly at the wrong time, didn't get paid that much. Um, but I was fascinated by, by the, the, the portrait that, that um, the author um, painted uh, of 
someone that I know, I didn't know anything about him. Um, and although I knew the outlines of what he did, and that gave me the idea for the Nowhere Men. You know, the Nowhere Men, Nowhere Men are, are they're everywhere and nowhere. We all right. know what a, uh, a scout does, a talent scout does, but we don't know who these people are. We don't know why they do, do it. They don't, we don't know how they do it. Um, so really, the basic premise of the book was to look at this culture um, and try and examine from a, as many different angles as possible how it works and why it works. Um, and it was... It was fascinating because scouts in whatever sport are are central to the the star system, if you like. They're central to the mythology of sport because they're the ones who are there at the birth of the dream. They're the ones who are on the touchline or in the stand where they see something almost almost intangible occasionally that that in, informs them intuitively that something in front of them is quite special. Um, and what really amazed me during the course of the book, I was on the road for about 15 months uh, with these guys. And one, they were, they, were, they were wonderfully welcoming because certainly over here in the UK, they, didn't, uh, they, they hadn't had uh, the degree of scrutiny that I wanted to give them. And I think they, they wanted to tell their stories, which from, from my pers personal point of view was fantastic. But also, when you um, you see them, you realise that they are, as I said, central to the game, and they are, um, you know, they are commercially viable people, if you like. They, you know, they make their, their their football clubs potentially millions of pounds, yet they're paid a pittance, and they're almost uniformly disrespected, which I found, um, you know, quite amazing, really. Yeah, what is the typical profile of a football scout? Ooh, uh, at the moment, what well, you know, there are, as as you know, as you know, Howard, the the, the the nature of scouting and recruitment is undergoing a fundamental change, and I think it's you know that process of change is is still ongoing and will probably continue to be ongoing for some time to come, where you have the cultural shift from what I call the old school scout, who. Uh, probably feels the game in his bones. He, he can, as I said earlier on, there is something that catches his eye. It might be the weight of a pass or the intelligence of someone's movement. Or, you know, to give a small example, um, in the book there is a 73-year-old uh, um, guy called John Griffin, and John Griffin has produced literally hundreds of professional footballers over 40 years in the game. And one of his um, biggest um, successes was, was a guy called Stan Collymore, who right. was a, a very um, uh, outspoken and very uh, actually intelligent uh, commentator on the game at the moment. But uh, John saw him, uh, he went to watch a goalkeeper in a, in a non-league game, and he saw Stan Collymore walk out, literally walk out of the tunnel and, and break into a jog onto the pitch. And he knew then, he saw something then, that this guy, he had to sign. Now, when you ask him to articulate why, he struggles. But yeah. there was something within him which said, look, this is something special here. 
um, you know, almost this sort of you know, extra sensory perception. I don't know. It's a yeah. strange one, really. That's that's really interesting because um, I heard something similar from a general manager of a major league baseball team. It was actually a lecture given by Frank Wren, who's GM of the Atlanta Braves here. And he said that he loves encounters with the old school scouts. You know, and this is an organization like all organizations in Major League Baseball that have embraced analytics. They have, um, they have an analyst on staff. They have a number of people who do research in baseball sabermetrics. But they love talking to the old school scouts because they have this feel for the game and they have this memory of other players going back from 30, 40 years in the game. So they can look at a player's swing or look at a player's stance and say, that person reminds me of someone from 30, 40 years ago. And I guess new school, in quotes, analysts like, like us, even if we're fans of the game, we don't have that kind of in, intuitive feel. We don't have that memory bank of, other, of having seen other players uh, to draw from. Yeah. Well, it is. A, the, the, I, my mentor within the book was a, was a chap named uh, Mel Johnson. Now, Mel um, was chief scout at uh, Queen's Park Rangers, then he was chief scout at, um, at Tottenham Hotspur, uh, was instrumental in getting Gareth Bale to go there. Uh, he worked for and very closely with uh, Damien Camoli, right. um, who obviously has, has you know, um, you know, very well-founded roots um, in, in the analytic movement and you know, with his relationship with Billy Bean. Um, but it, when, and then he, he now works for, um, uh, for Liverpool. He was taken to Liverpool by uh, Damien uh, as one of their senior scouts um, and retained his job um, when regime change happened and, uh, and Bernard, and, sorry, and, um, uh, Brendan Rodgers uh, came in. The interesting thing... Uh, that uh, Mel taught me um, as we went around together. Well, when, I, when, he, when he goes out on the road, he has a sheet of A4 paper which he folds in half and he writes the, he writes the teams out very methodically after having obviously studied them, looking at, you know, he'd seen them on, uh, on Y Scout, he'd seen, so he'd seen the videos, he'd, he'd actually looked at the, you know, the stats and everything else on, on, iPad, on his iPad and everything else. But, there are little human things that he looks for. So, for instance, he has a little... If he, we were watching a youth team game, and he just put next to each player, looks like. So there's a player there, and he looked like Craig Bellamy, the, the, the um, Wales international player. Right. Uh, just as a mental trigger, almost. This is what he looks like. And Now, that might be... It probably wasn't facially, uh, or but it might have been his body shape, or it might have been the way he ran, or whatever it was. He would. That's just a mental trigger in a way that a coach would have a mental trigger word when he's, when he's addressing a player or whatever. Um, and going on the road with Mel was really instructive because I tried to get to the heart of, of, of how they do it. And, and he actually picked me up on it very, very early. I think we were doing our second or third game, and we were watching a, an under-19 international between England and the Czech Republic. Now, he pretty much knew everything he needed to know about the England players. Uh, but had been alerted to the potential of the Czech goalkeeper um, who had just gone to Verona in Italy from a club in Prague. Um, 
And while we were watching him, after about five minutes of the match, he turned to me and said, look, you, know, you are making the mistake of every coach and every manager who's ever come out to watch a player with me. You're actually watching the game. And I said, well, sorry, isn't that the point? You know, I've been doing, doing that for 30 years. He said, well, yes, what you're doing is you're following the, the flow of play, you're looking at the shapes, you're looking at the systems, you're following the ball. You don't do that. You just look at your man. And that was when the penny dropped to a degree because when you're scouting, certainly on an in, you know, when you're looking at a player or for a player or at a player, it might be that player, it might be a complete unknown, but he catches your attention. And then you absolutely lavish the attention that, your attention, that, that you, you'd lavish on a lover. You, it's a really intimate personal process where all you do is you watch that person and it's amazing what you see when you watch someone so intently yeah um, i think that's really interesting that. because i know in the analytics world um i guess speaking for myself personally um individual statistics on a player are pretty much meaningless because they're devoid of context so you need the context of what the player has done and what players around him have done in the match. But when it comes to scouting in, in, in your book, it's more important to focus intently on the player and look at how he's, how he's addressing the ball and how he's moving on, on the pitch. And I think those two, those two pictures are really important for, for forming the composite image of the player and how he's interacting in the match is... Is that accurate? Um, is there something to that? Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah very much I had. I, th I think, well, the interesting thing is, is sport is, was, and always will be a people business. Yes. And it, it is interesting. So you look at, uh, to give an example, we went to watch another goalkeeper, a goalkeeper called Jack Butland. Um, yeah, we're aware of Jack Butland. He was, he, was yeah. our, um, he was one of our top prospects in the championship last season. Yeah, yeah. Well, Jack, we went to see him. He was on loan at Lee, in League Two with Cheltenham, uh, Cheltenham Town, and we were, it was a Friday night in Southend United at Southend. Uh, and frankly, he had, he had an absolute nightmare. They lost four 0 He was uh, responsible pretty much for three, uh, three, if not all, of the goals. Um, and again, we were going through that process of just watching him and him alone, and. Again, that was a bit of a moment of epiphany for me because I actually saw the big boy lost in a man's world there because they conceded, he, he dived over a, uh, a shot for the fourth goal and his new teammates literally just turned their back on him, walked away from him. And he walked up to the, to the penalty spot and was completely forlorn and he then began to chew the neckband of his jersey. Uh, and as I said, he looked like this little boy that lost in it all. Now, within five months of that night, he was playing for England. He was the youngest goalkeeper ever to represent England at senior level. Which I, and you, I, I'd, have given, I'd have given you a million to one for that happening. Um, yeah, that was a really, really interesting. That was a really powerful image in that book. Um, yeah. Of, of him chewing on that and I guess it speaks yeah. to his mental strength that he was able to recover from that and earn, earn himself a call up 
Yes, certainly. Um, the, you know, the jury is out on him. He, he got a, he got a transfer uh, to Stoke City, uh, but he found himself a choice there this season. He's just gone out on loan to Barnsley, who are bottom of the Championship. Right. So you know, he has a long way to go. Um, and the, the doubts that we saw that, that we were expressing that night, that basically the biggest clubs, every club watched him. But there was something there that they felt was missing, so they remained on the fence. So it, it, it you know, it's, it can be a really brutal uh, process. Um, I think, that, I think, the, you know, to, to, for your broader point, um, I think that the interesting thing about analytics at the moment is that you know, people have come into football um, from an academic standpoint. Um, they come from an academic community. Now, English football certainly, and I, th- you know, I think globally probably as well, it, it is it is a it's an introspective sport. So, and this I saw this happening initially with you know when when sports science was in its relative in- infancy in football, it needed footballers to come in and maybe at the end of their career understand the potential of of sports science. Um, and then come back into the game. And because they are of the game and they have a track record within the game, they are taken more seriously than you know, an admitted, admittedly intelligent, brilliantly qualified uh, young guy coming in with, you know, with a, with a, with a uh, you know, degree. We're in, a state, we're in a state at the moment where football has got to learn to trust uh, analytics, but it also, I think... I think where and this, this is where you know, I'm sure we can go into it into more detail, but I think this is where the next step for analytics will come: is that the, the, the analysts themselves have to have that intuitive understanding of the game that the old school scouts have. Once they have that, and it's not just a sort of a, a bland, uh, bloodless, anemic process of crunching numbers, that there is intuition behind those that number crunching. That's when we'll see the progress, I think. Yeah, I, I was drawn to a section in your book. I think it's um, page 289 where you're talking about... Um, I forgot the name of the protagonist here. But, um, yeah, it was, it was a chapter about, uh, about David Rocastle, I guess the scout who, oh, yeah. who found him. Um, and, yeah, which yeah. is also a really tragic story in and of itself, but that's probably for another mm. time. Um, but there was a section where he was talking about um, what had been happening at other teams, and you had teams such as Portsmouth and Rangers falling off, and you said, this was not the last bellow of a dinosaur at an approaching meteorite that was destined to block out the sun. It was the authentic voice of football's conscience, a fastidious man of principle, attempting to prevent the erosion of everything which he believed. Would the technocrats and barrow boys, conspiring in, in, in an irreversible change in culture, care about an old man who cared about others? I doubt it, but they are lesser men, arid characters lacking depth in humanity. And um, I guess I was... I guess I was struck by that, because... Um, because as someone involved in analytics, you know, I care very deeply about data and gain means from the data. But it's also very important to realize that these are, 
know, these are flesh and blood people that we're, that we're dealing with. You know, there's a human element to analytics. And, and sometimes it's, you know, I guess sometimes it's not very apparent that we're always aware of that, but I know it's important that we, um, that we are. Um, yeah, in, in that particular um, section, really, what I was trying to talk about was the, I was really struck by uh, Alex. I've, again, another man like John Griffin. Um, Alex has been around in the game for for forty odd years, and uh, you know, a man who has a you know questing mind. You know, he talked earlier on in that chapter about you know, going, going to Brazil in the late 90s and looking at the way that they trained. He was going scouting there, and he was looking at the way they were training. Their players were, were running through stones or different grades of material. Um, and I think that was... You know, what, I, what I loved about Alex was the fact that... And I suppose you know, most writers are quite romantic by nature. And, and, and I, I love people who exude enthusiasm uh, and uh, understand um, maybe, maybe there's a lack of ego in, in, in what, he, what he did and, but he was a very gentlemanly man he was a, a very courtly figure very dignified, very organised when I was talking about our characters lacking depth and, and humanity I think what I was talking about there was, was, was the commercial dimension of the game at the moment where a lot of people are in sport for what sport can do for it rather than for what they can do for, for sport itself. And I think that was where the difference is with Alec, you know, that, that, that he, actually, he actually contributed to not just the game as a sort of amorphous thing, he actually made people's lives because he, had, uh, he cared about the players that he found and he developed. And um, I think that's really important. Um, as far as the that, that's uh, a really uh, if you if you don't mind me interrupting I think that's a yeah, really yeah, interesting yeah. that's a really interesting point Michael because I heard the same thing talking to people who were involved in I guess the golden era of entertainment in Hollywood and, and other places where yeah. it was there was definitely more of a human element involved of identifying stars involved in production Whereas now you have a lot of people in Hollywood who are there because it's kind of an alternative to being on Wall Street. So you have a lot of Ivy League types, people with university degrees or you know, professional backgrounds that's become kind of a soulless, bloodless thing. Is that starting to happen in football as it particularly football in Britain as it becomes more I guess, middle class and mainstream or even, I guess, upper class, where it's now fashionable to say that you that you follow a football club. Yeah, yeah. The giveaway usually, Howard, is, is people talk about footy uh, rather than football. Footy, I, I don't know what that is. I don't know. <laughs> I, it's I hope that that's like, the game doesn't exist. It's like an Australian term. Uh, it's like borrowing the term from yeah. Australian rules football. But it, but it, but it's it's a very it's a very sort of loose and sort of almost flippant. Um, you know, I've always loved football as a working class game. To be perfectly honest, um, I think the best clubs is where we go back to to, to Millwall and and the club with which I grew up was, was Watford. Um, 
I can remember going back to when I was about oh, 10, 11, 12, something like that, um, and Watford was a lower division team, uh, but uh, one day we beat uh, Liverpool, uh, who was, it was Bill Shanky's first great team, 1-0 to get to the FA Cup um, uh, semi-final. Uh, now, that was the day I saw my first grown man cry. He was a Liverpool fan, sagging against the fence. I remember him now. He had what we had on, what we call over here a, a donkey jacket, which is like a work jacket, and it was full of badges, and he had a, a red and white scarf down to his knees, and he was sobbing his eyes out because Liverpool had been beaten. And at that moment, as a young boy, I realised what a football club means to people, and I also mean uh, what also means to the community itself, because you know the town in which I lived was absolutely energised by that performance, and I had collective pride in that performance. So that's the humanity of football, which is in danger of being lost, because it, because especially with the advent of, of you know, the English Premier League, um, it is a global commodity. Uh, it has now been populated by uh, largely foreign owners. Now um, that's not a xenophobic um, comment, but it's just an observation. Yeah, but, but but certainly there is a, there is a uh, one looks at the absolutely brilliant business plan that the Glazers have got at Manchester United. Uh, for, for their point of view, it was it was it was you know, it's been an absolutely um, object lesson in how to to make an awful lot of money out of sport. Uh, the fact remains that Manchester United is now. The PLC registered in the tax haven in the Cayman Islands. It's uh, quote. It's it's quoted on the New York Stock Exchange. The Glazers have cost that football club 680 million pounds since 2005. Um, so there, there is. It, it is. A, you know, I feel that a, a, an owner like an ownership structure like that is is essentially parasitic. Um, there are others. Who I think have probably got a broader view of things. I think the Fenway Sports Group at Liverpool understand what they have there now, uh, given the the mistakes which were were, were made by um, you know, Messrs Hicks and Gillette. So um, you know, I'm not making a, a narrow xenophobic point, but I, I do believe that football clubs and football people have to understand that the game, at its best, reflects the communities that it represents. And I think people do lose sight of that. Yeah, that um, we had an interview with Martin Tyler, um, yeah. you know, for another project, and he said something similar that um, that if the English team were successful at World Cup, and by success at semifinals or or beyond, the the level of reaction in that in England would surpass. It would surpass the Ashes. It would surpass Andy yeah. Murray's achievement. It would be the biggest. It would be the biggest uh, sporting accomplishment in modern British history. But he didn't sense that the foreign, that the current spate of foreign owners fully appreciated that. No, uh, and, and uh, well, you know, we have a, a bit of a, you know, a pseudo soap opera going on, you know, as we're speaking here at, at, at Cardiff, where you have a Thai owner uh, who admits that when he went into the football club, really knew very little about the game, um, has 
changed, well, he's ignored the tradition, changed the colours of the team, which might be, to, to a non-sporting person, quite sort of, you know, trite and insignificant. But again, those colours, they were blue originally, Cardiff City, they were then changed into red. They were called, they're still called the Bluebirds, for goodness sake. But, uh, so there's, there are, there are countless generations of tradition just basically dismissed. Now, taking that further, um, the owner, Vincent Tang, has just dismissed the recruitment, um, uh, the head of recruitment of the football club, and replaced him with a 23-year-old who just happens to be the son, uh, sorry, the, the, the friend of his son. Yeah, I, um, I read that. I was just appalled by, by that news. Well, it's ludicrous. Lud- lud- and uh, but interestingly, there, there, how that does also chime with the sort of lack of respect for the recruitment process that, that I detected while I was doing the book. Um, and the one thing that I would say that analytics is absolutely essential for football, the one area in which it is, is actually the, the doing of due, due, due diligence, really, where that's, it's an interesting thing. I, 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 as a sort of, a really rough rule of thumb, I always think that what happens in North American sport, the best elements of that come into the British or European system within five to ten years. Now, I look at the way that um, analytics is maturing in North American sport and see areas where that will work over here. I look at, most specifically, the the area of... um, now, it's easier in the States because of the draft system, but the whole area of psychometric testing, the human aspects of recruitment. I think it was best summed up in, in, in the Nowhere Men by um, a chap named Scott McLaughlin, who is the head of international scouts at Chelsea. Right. And his point, his point was, look, I can go out tomorrow and buy an office printer, and I pretty much know what I'll get from that printer. It will print me 50,000 colour copies over the next four or five years, it will be obsolete, obsolete, and then I'll go and get another one. His point is, look, we are, we are paying £50 million for a footballer. We don't know who this person is until the moment he walks through the door. What inspires him? What makes him tick? Is it money? Is it glory? Is it his family? Is it his ego? They don't know. We don't know because until that person signs the dotted line, Finds on a lot of life with, on his contract and becomes their property instead of someone else's property, they don't know because they can't check it. And this is where this whole intelligence system with recruitment, because of the, the nature of the football transfer market, it doesn't have the certainty that you would have, you know, in obviously a, you know, a, a sport like, well, in North American sport with the, with the draft systems across baseball, football, and, um, and, and basketball. I don't think there's what much of a certainty in our sports either. <laughs> no. There, there are plenty of crapshoot. It's pretty much a crapshoot. Yeah. And, 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 you know, there was another, there was, a, there was a, an occasion I quoted in the book where Manchester City were looking at spending £30 million on Alexis Sanchez. Um, before he signed for Barcelona from um, Udine or Udinese. And uh, Mike Rigg, the, technical, the, the then technical director at Manchester City, who then went on to Queen's Park Rangers, where it didn't go well with Mark Hughes, 
he's just got a job now as the head of the uh, of talent ID for, for the English FA. You know, good guy, wrong place at the wrong time probably with, with Queen's Spot Rangers. Now, when he was at Manchester City, he and another guy who uh, is now Liverpool's chief scout, funnily enough, uh, followed Alexis Sanchez around Udine for four days. And, and, they, posed, and, and they, they posed as fans to get his autograph to judge fans. his reaction, right? Absolutely. Now, <laughs> I, you know, I, admire, I, I admire their initiative, but that is no way to run a railway, is it? That, that you're, you're making huge calls with great financial significance on whether or not someone smiles at you when he signs an autograph or whether when he goes out with his mate he has a coffee instead of five beers. It is a very, very uh, haphazard way of doing business. Now, I'm, I've got no shadow of doubt that that is an area which will, um, which will develop quite quickly over the next few years where you know, I can see um, private investigators being used. I can, I can see specialist recruitment uh, companies and techniques being used. Because at the moment, when, when one signs a, a footballer, but basically, you're going on instinct, which, again, can be good or bad, and uh, things like peer testimonials. And, and it happens on a regular basis. And, and this is where, uh, funny enough, on that, uh, when, when I went out with Mel to watch Jack, Jack Butman that night, we were talking about, as I said, the, the whole haphazard nature of, of the game. And he said, well, look, you know, uh, actually, scouts, are almost used in the recruitment process uh, for managers because essentially they have their own network of, of contacts. And uh, so, for instance, Mel, he's quite old school, and, he, and, and, and God bless him, he loves a newspaper, which, um, coming from my background, being in print, print for 30 years, I, you know, I love him. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I know. You can't have too many of them. Yeah. Yeah, but but he said that you know you need to network, but and when you're on the outside looking in, he always says to the managers who lose their jobs, look, you've got to you've got to get out and about because managers, sorry, um, chairman and club owners talk to people like me about what you know who's out there on the scene at the moment, what are they doing? So it's a very very human process. This that uh, friendships mean a lot, um, loyalties, personal loyalties mean everything. Um, but it is quite haphazard. There, I, I look at, you know, I'm, I'm sort of an observer of the North American scene, and you know, I'm hearing things like you know, NASA engineers now are becoming uh, used in, in, in um, you know, basic analytics. I don't, I don't know whether that's true or not. Rocket, but, you know, that's, that, that's true. Even even rocket scientists like myself. Yeah. I, I have a... <laughs> oh, right. My my okay. my background's in aerospace engineering, and that's okay. why I got my PhD okay. in. Right, right. Well, I, and and you see that that so if your rigor and your intellectual rigor is matched with experience, you have got the super scout because you will then have both, uh, best of both worlds. You know, I, I found it interesting talking to to Damien Camoli about. You know, he made the point, and it's a point that I agreed with, um, where you know the best system marries analytics and the old school scout, for want of a better term. 
and he, he, he mentioned um, Bill James, you know, obviously the, you know, the godfather of, of Moneyball, uh, right. being with the Red Sox. Uh, but also the Red Sox have, I think it was a 50, 50 um, what I would call orthodox scouts, uh, right. the Yankees. You know, the, the Yankees have got 21 statisticians, according to Damien. Um, but they've got a very good scouting network, and, you know, an orthodox scouting network. So, in a way, you limit your options. If, if you go one way or the other and you say, right, okay, I'm only going to trust the guy who, who puts it all down on the back of a cigarette packet and doesn't know how to use email, or I'm going to go to a guy who has got the, a PhD in pure maths but wouldn't know one end of the football from another. And, 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 and I think it's easier in, in American sports, if you take baseball as a good example, you know, baseball is pretty much a, it's a linear sport, isn't it? You know, the, the, there are, the, the statistics are, are quite easy right. to and, analyze. And they, describe, or whatever it is. and they describe everything that happened in the game. Yeah. And so, therefore, you don't have to have that feel for the game to be a very successful, very important analyst of the game. Whereas football is probably it's it's a much more um, there are so many more there are so many more things going on at so many more levels. Yeah. Uh, and also, we go right back to the introspection of football. You know, there is what what I call in in, in English football, well, in, in, in football in general a show as your medals culture. Well, what have you done? Right. Um, and that is where, um, in a way, I think the analytical movement can help itself by by understanding, look, this is our audience. They're not experts in maths or statistics. The metrics that are used are very complex by their very nature. But what the coach needs and the manager wants and the players require is simplicity. Yes. Now, if that comes at a very small cost in terms of not it's 99.8% accurate or it's 97.4% precise, well, fine. You know, that's a margin that you can probably work with and deal with because yeah, and it was something in the book. I, I remember talking to a guy called Ben, ben Napper, who, who is one of the analysts at Arsenal. You know, he has to deal with people who have a, a, an instinctive skepticism about what he is telling them because they turn around and say, well, look, I didn't have statistics. I didn't have a video when I was a player 35 years ago and we won this and I won that. And that's where it has to be a much more subtle process and it has to, you know, there is, I... scouts now, you know, I talk to Mel now a lot and, and Mel at Liverpool, they are, they are becoming a very analytical club, and right. a lot of their scouting, a lot of their scouting now is done initially on video, um, and then they go and watch. So you know the video is almost like sorts of wheat from the chaff, as it were. But there is still a scepticism within scouting that you cannot really make a, a judgment call on a player off a DVD. You just can't do it, um, as someone said in the book. You know, if you want to, if you if you want to watch a, a game on TV, it needs to be sixty yards long. Yes. The screen, because then you can get because you know, as, you know, as we all know, 
you know, you look at television, television is like looking through a keyhole. You see a certain part, and, you know, very, as you said very much earlier on, Howard, everything's about context. Everything has to be put into perspective. And, um, you know, this is where I think the challenge for, uh, for, for the, uh, what I would assume to be, you know, the, 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 the listener to, to this um, podcast is that you have an audience. If you go to that audience and you engage with the audience by saying, we will make you, we, we can make your job easier. We can make your job, we can make you more effective. I think that's a really important standpoint. Don't blind people with science. Blind them with the opportunities that you can create for them. Right. Um, let me see here. Uh, what were your... It, it was interesting, uh, Michael, to read your impressions of Damien Camoli, or at least read the passages surrounding Camoli mm-hmm. and you know the departure from Liverpool, because... Uh, I kind of detected a certain coldness in the tone of writing. Uh, maybe I'm being oversensitive, but it, um, it seemed to have warmed up a little bit when you're talking about Matthew Benham and Brentford because he seemed to recognize the limitations of analytics as well as the capabilities. Yeah, I, I, found, I found Matthew fascinating. And um, he's, again, uh, I think he, he probably... Um, I think has got closer to the model as it will eventually evolve. Um, I found him very interesting on, on Damien Camoli. You know, my view of uh, Damien, you know, there is no point. Get, there is no point in hiding the fact that he polarizes opinion massively within football. Um, there are some people who feel he is a showman and has very little substance. To be perfectly frank. Others worship or, or, or feel that everything he says deserves to be enshrined in holy writ. <laughs> he, you know, he, he, he does get, he, he, he does, there are extremes of opinion. Um, I have a rather so, more nuanced view on him. <laughs> <laughs> but what I found really interesting, and, and again, it's, it's an area that, uh, that I, don't, I, I know very little around. But I, I trust Matthew's instinct in this, where, you know, here's a guy who, I suppose if we look at it coldly, he's a professional gambler. That, that is a very, very simplistic way of looking at what he does and what his company does. But essentially, he is in a situation where he uh, employs, I think the last time, I think it was 17 PhD graduates, uh, I went into his room. There were two rooms where, where he, or two two uh, areas in which uh, his firm, Soccer Odds, or, 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 or I think it's called Soccer Odds, I can't remember. Smart Odds. Sport, sporting Odds, yeah, yeah. Uh, operate. Now, one is the, the standard, uh, almost like the trading floor with TVs everywhere and guys um, you know, watching um, games as they unfold. The other side was the, uh, you know, the boffing central. And uh, they were, uh, thankfully, uh, I didn't. I, I don't have a mathematical background, but I could see all these the algorithms and, and mathematical equations on whiteboards on the wall. And they could have, you know, they could have taught me the meaning of life, and I wouldn't have known about it. Because, but it was fascinating to see that sort of academic, um, almost melting pot 
I, you know, I, I really like I really like the way that uh, that, yeah. that Matt works there. But interestingly, he basically he dismissed Bandian um, because, you know, as he said in the book, he was you know, there was a sort of a secret. Um, he was he went up to see Damien at Liverpool uh, via uh, Frank McParland, uh, who was the what was it is the um, uh, runs the academy there, and uh, and he basically said about Damien that, that what struck him was Damien's certainty. You know, the idea was well, you come up, I've, I've got a mathematical model, you've got one, let's compare and see where we go with it, and what. Damien said to um, Matthew was, this is my model, I know it's correct. <laughs> now, that doesn't compute. Right, doesn't compute. not at all. And, and, and I'm sure that's something that, 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 you, would, that you, would, you would understand and, and, and they'd probably you know, just agree with me. That was, that was the interesting thing where, uh, you know, he is... Um, as what Matthew said was basically look, modeling is an inexact science um, and you know there's a lot of you, 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 there's a sort of balance between data or lack of it and and the relevance or lack of it um, you cannot have that you know sympathy he said look you know my model is just correct you cannot do that as Matthew said science is about uncertainty and the limits of knowledge Right. So you can never be 100% correct about anything. And I think that was where, you know, he felt, uh, without being sort of personal about it, that that was where maybe some of the issues with some of the signings that, that Damien made, for instance, Andy Cowell mentioned, you know, he had, a, he had an exceptional six months playing for Newcastle before Newcastle, before Liverpool bought him. But, and, and probably a model was... I think I, I'm, again, um, I'm sure you'll correct me if I've got this wrong, but I think he, what Matthew talked about was um, over-parameterisation, i.e. the models that these guys do create within football, uh, people like Damien, have too many, uh, too much in them, basically. Right. Um, and so that there was almost, the the, the there was a, there was a simplicity to it's there, not as simple as Damien was suggesting. Yeah, there, there's with yeah, there's an issue called uh, overfitting, where you have right. um, say so you have a model to capture um, to capture certain phenomena. Let's be really general, and if you have too many uh, if you have too many parameters, you end up you end up perfectly capturing the behavior of your test data. That you use mm. to train your model, but when you right. test on something different, like say a transfer, weather conditions, something like that, you end up cap you end up capturing something very different because you're too, um, because you know you take a look at you you develop a model, you have a bunch of parameters, and you say, okay, well this you know all these parameters capture everything I need, but. Um, you end up capturing a lot of other effects that may take you down, take you down the wrong path to understand what's going on. And I think that that's what's going on. I think another point that Matthew touches on um, goes to something that I, one of the one of the most important things that I learned in my academic career, and it's a saying that the um, the experimentalist 
um, when experimentalist uh, presents presents his results, um, everyone believes his results except for the person running the experiment. When a computationalist presents his results, no one believes the results except the person running the computations. And it it basically saying that people who people who do these statistical mathematical models have a have a strong degree of faith in the models that they've created, and that faith is almost always misplaced because mm-hmm. you know they're. Because you're working off initial assumptions, you know, you take first principles from from those. But the thing is, you're working off an assumption of how the world works that doesn't correspond with reality. Um, and no, it, no, it's, it's interesting. Sorry, it, it, it's interesting. Matthew talked about a, a book that he makes his his uh, traders read um, by the the Nobel uh, Prize winning psychologist uh, Daniel Kahneman. Where I think the book was called Thinking Fast and Slow. Yes, that's right. Where, that's a really great book. Yeah, yeah, and and, and he talked about where you know Cameron was talking about uh, he was Cameron was helping the Israeli army on on a, on a leadership exercise, which involved essentially getting getting a, a, a log over the wall, but no one could touch the wall, and neither could the, the log. And um, he had to look. It was a sort of a, a leadership exercise, and, and he had to assess potential leaders through, you know, who was calm under pressure, you know, who was, who was respected by the group, that sort of stuff. And his predictions on who would get through the course were absolutely appalling. You know, he got, he got pretty much everything wrong. Because, but as you said earlier on, his, he, he had huge certainty that, that the predictions that he made would be right, but they weren't. Now, the interesting thing was, the next time, literally the next time he, he went through exactly the same process, he made exactly the same um, judgment calls, and he was incredibly confident about the judgment calls, despite the fact that the ones that he'd made a little earlier had been so catastrophic. So as you say, you know, people are very overconfident in their, in their ability to actually um, get things right. And... I think, you know, going back to the model as well, as I can remember now Matthew saying, look, what we're talking about is a model. We're not talking about reality in any way, shape, or form. And for, so really, um, you know, you do need that input from the scouts as well to actually balance up right. the, you know, so you've got to balance up the subjective and the objective. Um, and um, so if you look at some of you know, obviously there's a degree of commercial sensitivity about the way he operated um, uh, but you know, he, for instance you know, he grades the quality of chances I think at 10 different levels while, because he you know, he's, he's incredible when you think about it uh, that he's trading um, up, well five, five routinely trading five matches at, at, at once. Um, I think he said that the, the most he'd ever done was 15 at one go, which I just can't get my head around at all, quite literally, um, because and the way it works is that he has these various formulae which which enables him to work out the, the targets for the best bet, and when when the, the screen beeps and goes red, there's a bet there to be made, and he does so. 
um, you know, fascinating process. I, in fact, right. I, I didn't understand what on earth was going on in front of my eyes, but it was it was one of those ones where um, I, I I really liked Matthew because uh, he is he was completely counterintuitive in so many different areas, and I can see why you know people within football who are conditioned to being risk averse and uh, uh, being only responsive to people who. Of, of the same milk, if you like, um, I, uh, I can see why they don't really trust, you know, the, the Matthews of this world. Um, you know, I found him really interesting. I, I spoke in the book about this, the whole idea of of, of, uh, of Shane Battier, the, the basketball player, and and the whole idea of um, you know being the, the glue guy, the, the you know the guy who gets the team to, to sort of embed together, uh, and the whole idea of the of, uh, you know the plus-minus principle of right. Uh, you know, don't look at the you know the individual stats. Um, and he, he, he said you know, in basketball terms, individual stats don't really tell you that much. They have to be viewed in a collective context. You know. Right. That, does the team play well when this particular guy is on court? And, and that that's where Shane Battier comes in. That there is someone who judged. Just on his own abilities, his natural abilities. I think there's a quote I used in the book uh, where I think, yeah, I think his former employer said, "Look, he can't dribble. He's slow. He hasn't got much body control." Well, but he's been the you know the most valuable player for for teams, uh, both good and bad, because he came in with the Grizzlies, who were an expansion team and, and were pretty awful. But was their best player, and they and he, he's improved every team that he's been in. Funny enough, Matthew and I tried to actually work out uh, just just as sort of as an exercise while we were chatting what the football, who the football equivalent of Shane Battier would be, uh, i.e., someone who really hasn't got um, obvious natural talent is probably dismissed by the uh, cognoscenti, uh, but is always picked first by his, by his coaches and really loved by his teammates. And, and the nearest we got to that was um, Emil Heskey. Uh, Which I think is really teammate. interesting because he's pretty much been run out of England. <laughs> absolutely. No, absolutely. You know, and, uh, and, and that, was the, that was the fascinating thing about it. Um, and, I, and again, what we are here with... You know, with analytics and metrics and everything else, is, is we are essentially in an in, a, in, a, in an area which um, is still you know it's, it's still evolving, and I think the integration of analytics into football will be more evolutionary than, than revolutionary it's, because the it's very embryonic. Yeah. I, I think it's still yeah. very embryonic because um, the. I think clubs don't know what they want. And the thing is that um, the analytics about football are still very mature. I mean, football is a really, really difficult sport to analyze um, just because it's a more fluid sport. You have a lot more players to deal with. You have, you have to incorporate time and spatial context. It requires a certain amount of skills to do that. And also you need knowledge of the game. And there aren't too many people in the world who have those. You know, you could no, probably I, get I people. You could probably get people at Imperial think, or MIT or other places with those skills. Yeah. But 
How many of those yeah, are football I, fans? I, I, I think I think there's a, the, a new generation will emerge. You know, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll declare an interest. My my son's 23, uh, 24. He has his uh, sports coaching science degree, uh, but has a you know, player's background. Realised he wasn't going to quite make it. Went into coaching. He's got his coaching badges. He has worked as a scout for funnily for, for Millwall. He was he's got a bit of a project of Kenny Jacket, the manager there. So he's he's the old school scouting, but now he is he's doing his masters now uh, in performance and uh, analysis. Um, and I see you know, literally him coding. You know, funny, you know, well, um, from where I'm sitting now, he, he, he's upstairs and, and, and actually coding a game as we speak. Um, I see someone like him and of his generation or a group of, of, of those guys being the one to make the breakthrough because they have credibility with the coaches and the manager because they know that you know, they've seen them put on coaching sessions. Um, you know, the fact that my son Aaron has already been a first, you know, has been trusted as a first-team scout by another championship football club, even though he's very young. That then gives him credibility. When he goes to someone, to his manager, and says, look, you know, analytically, ABC, or, or whatever it would be, and, and, and that is where people who have respect within the game, they will open people's minds. And I think... Uh, that's where the, the, the sort of quantum leap will take. And I, I, I really suspect very strongly that the new generation of analysts who are, who are coming through the systems now in different sports, and I'm thinking guys of between the ages of about 23 and maybe 33, something like, something like that. They are the guys who will make big impacts. Um, what we have at the moment is we have a few pioneers um, you know, one of the best guys that I met um, on the circuit was um, James uh, Smith, who is, is head of um, uh, technical scouting at Everton. Um, and one of the chapters in the book, which has created quite a bit of interest, is... The one on David Moyes? Yeah, on yeah. His war room. I, I want to ask a couple of questions about that. Um, yeah. Well, I'll let you describe it, but to... Um, do you know if he's been able to replicate that kind of study at Manchester United? Because it seems that that kind of environment does not it you can't replicate that immediately, and that might explain, I guess, perhaps a lackluster performance in the transfer market for them. Yeah, I, I think you know there's a you know there's a lot of revisionism going on about David Boys already, and I think it's nonsense to be perfectly honest. Like um, what? Well, that the, he's trying to turn Manchester United into Everton, and um, that he really, uh, instead of you know, I saw someone who had great rigor and um, fantastic attention to detail, it suits the agenda of other people just to say, "Well, that's just dithering." Well, I think if you talk to people at Manchester United, as I have done, I think there is a general acceptance that. They made a strategic mistake in um, uh, not buying out David's contract towards the end of last season at Everton. I think that would have given them an under, I think it was something like 52 days more for him to actually get his feet under the table and get his head around the nature of the club uh, because it's a schizophrenic football club. Um, it was a schizophrenic institution. 
the football side is based in Manchester along some Matt Busby Way, and um, you know we all know how good that is. But the commercial element of the club uh, is based in London, and they've got branches everywhere, apart from Pluto, probably. Um, and so that's a big thing to get, get one's head around. I don't think he had enough time to uh, assess the market properly or also get his head around a different type of player. Um, you see, at Everton, he was going for players through financial necessity uh, whom Manchester United don't need and don't want. Um, right. So, so uh, and, and, and he made, you know, did the classic the classic thing of going back to, to, to a place where he was comfortable, i.e. went back to his old club to get Fillet and uh, yeah, and tried to get Lane Baines. Um, I think he can only be judged over the next, I think, 12 to 18 months. And I'm sure he will be. Uh, you know, for uh, you know, there is a, There's been a strategic commitment to him by Manchester United and uh, I'm sure he'll get uh, due, due time to actually prove himself. So really, uh, to actually analyse uh, David Moyes' effectiveness as a, as a recruiter and in the transfer market, one has to, I think, wait at least 18 months to make a, a, a reasoned judgment on it. Would that change if they fail to qualify for the Champions League next season? Uh, never underestimate the power of panic in football. <laughs> <to do. laughs> um, but again, uh, that that. That would, obviously, there would be pressures imposed upon him if that happened. But I don't see David Moyes as a Wolf McGuinness or a Franco Farrell type of figure, someone who came in um, after you know, some, some Matt Busby and essentially wasn't, weren't up to the, wasn't up to the job. Uh, I think he is. Um, I find him a, a really good guy. I, I remember having dinner with a couple of us had dinner with him uh, in South Africa at the World Cup in 2010, and these occasions are are when you really get to know people because we see them, you know, at games, and there's always a sort of an adversarial atmosphere in a press conference, or even when you're just chatting to people at a training ground, you know, they're they're, they're on their they're on their uh, mark a little bit. Right. Now, David, David in, in that in that dinner was fantastic. He was very very funny, very insightful, very intelligent. You know, the, we still got the Glasgow scare now, stare now and again when he didn't agree what we were saying. But that was, he, he struck me as a, a proper football man, an authentic football man. And um, I was hugely impressed by um, what he did and how he did it at Everton. Um, you know, to give you some idea, the... The recruitment room itself is off limits to players, and you know essentially it's just whiteboards all around the room, uh, which is a distillation of. I think James Smith has. I think they've got about about a thousand major targets, uh, or, or they have a, a thousand um, realistic um, targets. Um, about five thousand reports on those on those targets, but. Um, it is interesting where if you look at um, you know the way David did things, he had he produced. Well, when a scout goes to a game, or you know for Everton, uh, each 
each scout has to assess every player under the age of 24 at the game. And they're graded on specific aspects of performances. Now, David Moyes calls that his MOT test. Um, and essentially, that's a roundabout up to a dozen criteria for each position. Uh, and his optimal target is 50 reports, around 50 reports, on a, on a primary transfer target. Uh, and they must be written between about 10 and 12 different scouts. So you've got a, you know, a, a range of opinion. And it is interesting, David Moyes is, is seen as, in many ways, quite understandably, as the, um, the traditional autocratic British football manager. And he does want the final say, and he does have the final say, but I found him really collegiate in his approach. You know, there was one, one of the whiteboards, um, he has basically six people around him that he trusts implicitly. His scouting staff, um, you know, James on the technical side, his assistant, um, and his first team coach. Now, there was one board where the group had to uh, choose uh, their idea of the best players outside the top six in the Premier League, uh, and they had to be under the age of 26. Um, so there was a small list produced, and I think it was four players when I was there had were unanimous choices of all six. And so, therefore, those six were then looked at really, really hard as potential recruits. Um, the other thing, and I think the key area of, of the whole room, it was, in, it was in the corner where David had put out his idea of his optimal first team in the system that he favoured playing. Each player was listed with um, contract details, age, appearance records. And that was just not over one season, but the following three seasons. So essentially what that was was a mind map to David Moyes, where the best managers know when to get rid of players, when they're just peaking, when they're just over the edge. And the gaps which appeared in the team over the three subsequent seasons showed you where his mind was going. Well, okay, you know, let's, I'm not being specific here, but let's say, okay, the left side is centre-half. There's a gap in that team after 18 months or two years. That means that I need to concentrate our fire on that. And then, and then that draws the eye straight back to the first whiteboard in the room, which is about the top 200 targets, and they're annotated in position order. Now, when you do that, you, you see strategic weaknesses in the market. So, for instance, the day I was there, there were very few right-backs. So there is a strategic right-back right problem. You know, we're talking, you know, the day before England player, um, their final World Cup qualifying match at Wembley. We haven't got a right-back at the moment, uh, although Phil Jones is probably going to play there for Manchester United against Poland tomorrow night. That proves the point. We've got left-backs coming out of our ears, fantastic left-backs. Ashley Cole, you want to send any to the U.S.? Sorry? I said you want to send any left backs to the U.S. because we've always had people <laughs> developing this. <laughs> yeah. <us. laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, um, it's, it, yeah, we are, we know we're in a situation where we've, got, we've basically got four world-class, potentially world-class left backs, and we haven't got a right back worthy of the name, in my view, anyway. Um, but I, I, I mention that because that, you know, the board, the whiteboard said, 
aren't many right backs around Chum. So it's, it's, it's really interesting. And, and I said there was there was a brilliant, you know, simplicity is genius. Well, I just thought it was absolutely fantastically simple. Yeah. And, and uh, I think there's a, there's a message in that somewhere. Yeah, it, I, I think their message is that, you know, the question that I had, has he been able to replicate that kind of say at Manchester United? I think that question pretty much answers itself because it would be impossible to it would be impossible to create that similar setup within you know the what the thirty forty days you have uh, to prepare for a new league season because it yeah. requires intimate knowledge of how your team plays and who you're searching who you're searching for. Um, you 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 can't do that over a summer. Yeah, well, it's, it's, that 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 room is a distillation of about eleven years' knowledge. Yes, yeah. So um, I know that. Gosh, we've been talking for a very very long time, and <laughs> I want to wrap it up. Um, mm-hmm. and I guess there's so many other there's so many other things that we didn't touch on, such as elite player performance plan. You know the the academy teams in the Premier in the Premier League. Um, I guess some more about you know more about the analytics world, and I guess our perspective on analytics kind of stagnating. I guess to borrow a term from Chris Anderson, but um, I guess to wrap up, what should what do scouts need to know about the quants in order to understand them better, and what do quants need to know about the scouts in order to understand them better? Uh, well, you need to come up with a new phrase. Uh, if, if I went to a, a scout, uh, let, like let's say Mel Johnson, I said, "What do you what do you need to know about the quants?" Okay. You have a clue what I was talking about. All right. Um, um, uh, you know, and 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 you know, and, and I don't say that. I, I, I don't say that. You know, it's, it's a bit, bit flippant to say it like that. But I, I make that point because essentially, you know, there is there is a degree of. Um, Resistance. There is a degree of, I won't put it as, as, as strongly as animosity, but there's certainly suspicion because if you look at it from the old school scout's point of view, they see really good people that they have worked with for years being put out of work by thinking about know, you know, what they perceive. You know, you know, they're very simplistic. They, they say, oh, well, prozone are putting these guys out of work. Now they're just using prozone as a generic for. For, for analytics and 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 the, and the fashion, what they see is the fashion of, of, of statistical analysis uh, at the expense of what they perceive to be the you know more important qualities of intuition and, and, and subjective judgment. There's a selling job to be done uh, at a number of levels, um, and uh, the selling job needs to be. Effective, it needs to be couched in terms that people can understand. Um, and I suppose it's, it's funny. We in, I ended up the book by actually sort of drawing um, comparisons between scouting and, and my trade journalism, where um, the onset of new technology is changing the ball game completely, and there's some really good people being put out of, out of work because of new practices and uh, almost a general lack of respect for old-school values, you know, be they in journalism or football. Um, and, you know, we are two tribes, 
scouts are tribes, journalists are tribes, we have our own rituals, we have our own um, uh, basic, uh, we have our own tenets of, of, of a basic philosophy. Um, you, you, you actually, if, I, if I'm in your position as someone trying to espouse the cause of, of analytics, I think you have to say that we can help. We can help you do your job better. We right. can inform you. We don't want to um, overwhelm you. Um, everything has to be. It's, it's when I when I when I one of the key lessons of, of of my working life was I was I was covering a, um, one of the great horse races of the world, the Melbourne Cup in Australia. Yes, and we were in a box with uh, uh, the late Robert Sangster, and uh, Robert said, "Look, I would give a journalist a job any day of the week, in a se- as a senior executive in my organisation." Uh, he said, "He said the problem is you've got no imagination." And I said, "Well, actually, you know, to be honest, quite a few journalists I know have got too vivid an imagination." But they explained. He said, "Well, look, you go into situations which are." Uh, you know, you are good with people, and you are intuitive about them as, as characters. And you go in and sum up complex situations instantly and in bite-sized chunks. That you can disseminate that information uh, in those bite-sized chunks, and people will understand what you mean. That's what I, I think. Basically, analytics must have a mission to explain. Um, I've got no doubt that. Uh, over here in, in, in English football, uh, we're only scraping the surface of what analytics can do. But there has to be a, almost a, almost a PR job done in um, being be accessible. Right. Be it, th- accessible. There's a there's a huge education there's a huge educational Absolutely. component that that I think is lacking. I think that was the motivation of having this podcast series. Um, yeah. I, I guess uh, another, uh, I, my other comment about scouting versus analytics world is that um, I, I know scouts think that they're disrespected, they're absurdly underpaid and things like that. Um, people involved in analytics are very poorly paid as well by football clubs. Yeah. Uh, there is, I'm sure you know, I'm sure you're aware of the ad that was put out by a number of, I think by a couple of Premier League teams that were requiring yeah, a master's yeah. in sports science. You had to assume all costs. Yeah. You had to assume all costs for travel to all home and away matches and no compensation uh-huh. for two years. Um, you know, there's, I, I think there is a significant degree of disrespect or there's a lack of value seen not just by people, not just by football scouts, but also by people involved in performance analysis. So perhaps there's some opportunity for some common ground there. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I agree with you a million percent on that. How, you know, I, I saw those adverts and cringed and it was, it was something that when we set up the English Institute sport, um, that essentially that provided strategic support, science, medicine, education, in all our Olympic sports in, in the UK. And we, 
I think I knew, well, before, when I left, I think I had about 220 people working for me across the disciplines. And they were young, they were inquiring, they were intelligent, and they, were make, they are making real impacts in other sports. Uh, everything from cycling to squash to swimming to athletics. Um, and football has got the potential to make that quantum leap that some of those sports have made. Um, and you're right, attitudes have to change. And I cringed because uh, there are people in football who have a something-for-nothing mentality, and I think that's wrong. Um, uh, I think, you know, to, to, to sum it up, if, if, the, if the Nowhere Man as a book does anything, I hope it opens people's eyes of the potential of a coalescence between old school eyes and new school brain cells, for, for one of a better phrase. Um, you know, it's, it, it, people have to understand that there's a lot that can be done uh, together here. Right. Uh, I, I totally agree. And, and also just moving beyond being a shoestring operation, beyond the players, managers, and executives. It's, it's really appalling just how much football seems to get away with under, underpaying its support staff. Yeah, uh, it's it's brutal. It's awful. Um, and you know, they ruthlessly exploit but, the laws of, of supplies and demand. You know, but but they can do it because so many people want to work for a football club. Um, I can't tell yeah. you how many resumes I receive from people every week who want to work for us. You know, from all over the world, and are willing to work for nothing really. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I know it's it's. Football will get away with what it can get away with because that's the nature of the game. It's the nature of the people within it. And unfortunately, professional sport eats its young, be they competitors or uh, support staff. So, you know, that, yeah. That's where the culture's got to change. Right. Um, okay. You know, so you, you know, be, you've got to respect people, whether they're a 73-year-old scout who's done... 15,000 matches in his lifetime for a 23-year-old performance analyst who's burning with ideas, burning with ambition, uh, and has the natural intelligence to actually move the sport forward. Okay. Both of those people have to be respected. Right. One final question. Where can people purchase the Nowhere Man? Uh, good bookshops, bad bookshops. Um, uh, it's on Kindle uh, and on Amazon. Um, uh, the uh, book is published by uh, Century uh, in the UK. It's fourteen ninety nine. It's cheaper on Amazon. Um, so um, yeah, Amazon is you know pretty universal, isn't it? So um, that might be the first point of call. But it's but it's certainly on Kindle, and uh, so you can get an ebook or good old-fashioned print right like i did uh so (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's it's nice to handle a real live print book once in a while oh absolutely i i I have to say i'm a bit of a philistine and i i i i I prefer it's like newspapers i prefer newspapers I, I, i still smell the ink yeah i i read newspapers online but i go out and purchase books um i still don't have a kindle so go figure. 
Um, any yeah. other any other sites that you'd like to plug or mention? Um, well, certainly uh, my other book is called um, Family, Life, Death, and Football. Um, that is um, uh, published by ICOM. Uh, again, same sort of areas. Um, that's fine, really. Um, well, that's going to do it for our time here. Our guest for this okay. episode of the Soccer Metrics podcast has been Michael Calvin. Michael, um, what can I say? It's been a pleasure. Uh, thank you so much. That's a pleasure. No worries. All right. This is Howard Hamilton of Soccer Metrics Research. Thanks for listening to the Soccer Metrics podcast. Goodbye. You've been listening to the Soccer Metrics podcast. The Soccer Metrics Podcast is available for free from iTunes, so you can listen to it again and again. To find the notes for this edition and learn more about our research, services, and other resources, visit the site at SoccerMetrics.net. You can also find us on Twitter, at SoccerMetrics. So until next time, this has been another edition of the Soccer Metrics Podcast.